Father, thank you. Thank you for the gathering of brothers and sisters that we can come together, that we can lift your name high. We can praise you, that we can be reminded of the things that we desperately need. The moments of our heart that seem like they're fading, the moments when we're struggling, the moments when we ask, where are you? We can come together and our minds can be renewed. And we can feel a transformation within us as joy. Joy takes over the pain. Inexpressible peace and supernatural peace and unexplainable peace takes over. Because God, you're good and you're real and you work. So for all of us here, I pray that you work this morning. Bring right now providentially what it is we need today as we're invaded by your word, that we would embrace it, we'd change our minds through it, and we'd be transformed closer into the image of your son who laid down everything in obedience to you and on our behalf. We'll give you the glory, the honor, and the praise for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's another day. It's a hot one. We're here. We're outside, and it's gorgeous. Some of us are uh, sweating. Those of you who are not sweating, you're lying or you have a medical problem. Get that checked out. It is a hot day, but God is good. I think uh, Jason... Jason Austin reminded me, he's like, man, I wonder, imagine being on the Sermon on the Mount in that hot Middle Eastern heat, just listening, you know, in those robes, just listening. We get to experience a little bit of that and uh, the times that we're together outside. We're going to be in Romans 12. We're finishing up um, the, the real church verses that are found in Romans 12. And I want to share my heart a little bit. As I was getting into this sermon and these verses that are here right at the end, I was struggling. I was struggling because I'm looking at the passage that I'm going to be in. I'm like, God, what do you want me to do with this? And to share my heart a little bit, it's one thing to to prepare a lesson or to prepare a message and preach it. It's another thing when you feel the weight of responsibility of being a shepherd to people, being reminded of verses that say, hey, hey, you are keeping watch over people's souls. You will give an account for what it is you tell people, what it is you tell people that I say what it is you tell people to believe, what it is you are shepherding people in. You will give an account, teacher, shepherd, overseer. And so there's something that goes on, not just in my heart, but your other pastors and elders as well. When we're preparing a message, it's this dual struggle of what do you want me to say from the word versus God, what do you want me to say for the people that that you have numbered among us that you want me to shepherd? And I think sometimes the struggle is is, is your pastors are so focused in on your heart and our heart and our church and what, what we embody in our souls and if we're being conformed to the image of Christ and then sometimes from the other way, we're focused on the outward external things and there can be this miscommunication. I want you to know this morning that this passage is not easy and I have struggled with it and much like many verses in Romans 12, I have not wanted to preach them because I feel like a hypocrite. So know that as we go through this sermon today, it is not your pastor speaking to you, it's your pastor speaking on behalf of us all, one of your pastors. And so I ask for patience and prayer even as we go through it. Why did we name ourselves Summit Church? The whole reason we named ourselves Summit Church and we have the image of a mountain is to give us this picture that here on earth, when we're stuck in the forest, 
the summit, the thing that matters the most, the things that we should keep our eyes on, the the things that scripture says that are heavenly and unseen, that are up above, that we should keep our minds on and keep our eyes on and think on these things, get clouded by the canopies of trees we get stuck in. And the reminder is that we must always glare through the trees and the canopy and not let our peripherals get sucked in to those limbs and those leaves that are around us because then we start to ask ourselves, why God, what are you doing? Where are you? We start to feel alone in the forest on the journey called life. But all the while, the summit, the peak, the mountain is beyond it. And God has always left holes through the canopy so we can keep our eyes on what matters. And so when we come to Romans chapter 12, as we're summit church, we are looking in Romans 12 to the things that matter, to the summit, to the way things really are and the way they absolutely should be. At the very beginning of the chapter 12, we were told to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable service that we are to give up and forfeit our bodies for his service. Verse two tells us, hey, if you wanna be, con- if you wanna be transformed, do you know what has to happen? You have to not be conformed to the world, which we all naturally 100% born with are good at. Every single one of us is conformed to godly, godlessness in the world. That's every single one of us. And until God invades our heart and begins to change us, we stay conformed to the world. We act like the world. We think like the world. We talk like the world. We are of the Father, our Father, the devil. And then Jesus comes in and he begins to transform us. But how does that transformation come? Verse two says, by the renewal of our mind, which is why we have to focus on the word of God, which is why we are going through Romans 12, which is why we call it real church because the real church is characterized by these things. And the real church exercises its mind with God's word to say, I am always thinking wrong. If you lead, leave me to myself and what I should be doing and what I should be thinking, I will always turn away from you, God. I will always do what's contrary to you. God, you must invade my mind. So we must let Romans 12 invade our mind. Many of you are, are memorizing this chapter. Yes, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We desperately need this keep going in Romans 12, what do you find out about the real church? You see this one, you see this, this, this authentic worship where everyone's giving up their body. And then you, then you see this unification. You see this unity and the people using their gifts, spiritual gifts for one another and to God, forgiving one another, being patient with one another. And then you see this command to love genuinely, which is one of our pillars is genuine love. And genuine love has begun being painted here at the end and painted in such a way that I think it brings us who are very much acquainted with worldliness. It's still within these dead bodies of ours. As we read Romans 12, we get to the point where we say, how in the world can anyone do these things? God, do you know know what you're asking of me when you tell me to bless and not curse those who are persecuting me, those who would hurt me, when you tell me to do good to them? God, when you tell me to repay no one evil for evil, but to give thought what is honorable in the sight of God. Do you know how much this hurts? What this person or these people is doing to me? Live peaceably as much as depends on you with all men. And we've heard this reiteration over the last couple weeks, this reiteration of not repaying evil for evil. 
treating enemies and those who would hurt you in a way that is supernatural, in a way that is not worldly, in a way that is, that is so contrary to man that it would only be an act of God to be able to do that. Yet here we are in the real church in Romans 12 and we're being commanded, hey, this is the real church. This is the way Christ followers and those who've experienced the love of Christ, this is how they interact with one another and with the world. Today, we're gonna talk about overcoming evil. Or how about this, defeating evil. Or how about this, fighting against evil. There's not a single one of us that doesn't understand the concept of good triumphing over evil. Just about every single movie has that premise in it. And when a movie allows evil to win and it just ends, we feel, oh, and we walk away like, what did I just watch? Oh, oh, who twisted, twisted, it's perverted, right? And we, we struggle with it. But then we see the movies where all of a sudden like Spider-Man shows up and the rest of the Avengers show up and they're not gone and they're, they're brought back to life and they defeat evil once and for all. And we're like cheering, like, yeah, get him, get him. Because evil has been destroyed. Our mind thinks about overcoming evil in terms of warfare. We're going to talk about warfare here. We're going to talk about fighting. We're going to talk about overcoming. We're going to talk about victory. We're going to talk about defeating. So the one thing I don't want you to think when we get into these passages is that somehow we are passive or pacifists as Christians, that we don't have some type of offensive warfare against evil. But what this passage does show is that fighting evil is not like the world thinks. Overcoming evil is not going to happen by the means that are welling up within our body and in our flesh. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. I'm gonna read it real quick. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Chapter 12 ends with this statement. Don't be overcome by evil, but you overcome it with good. We have to look back at the verses we just read to see what overcoming evil actually is and what it looks like. The first thing he says there Verse 19 is, he says this, beloved, very, very passionate, very sensitive, very affectionate term that Paul is using for the Roman Christians as he calls them beloved, loved ones, loved ones, those, those who I love, but those who are loved by the creator of the universe. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. He gave his only son for you, beloved. I'm reminded, hey, this is who you are, beloved. Then he says this, Never avenge yourselves. You know, if we're going to overcome evil, this passage is showing us that there are necessary characteristics or traits in our life that have to be present. Our responses, necessary responses to when evil comes our way. Let me say another way. Suffering from the world, grieve, hatred, and oppression, and things that come to us either from brothers and sisters, but, but mainly from outsiders of the world that's under the sway of the evil one that hates you, wants to kill, steal, and destroy. 
It wants to ruin, ruin your reliance and your faith on God. It wants to ruin your unity with one another. It wants to ruin your hope and your joy. It wants to get you so twisted up in life. You can't, you can't even sleep at night because you're so angry. You're so confused. You're so bogged down by the trees that are around you. And you take your eyes off the summit and you forget the bigger plan that God is doing through you and for you. The first response that has to be present in the real church is that we never avenge ourselves. Don't, don't, don't avenge yourself when evil comes your way. Never avenge yourself. That means take vindication or justice or retribution. Take revenge into your own hand no matter what. Wait, 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 wait. But, no, you see, the person who says but when the Bible is clear is the person who's still looking at the trees around them. What about this, this? We are told to never, never avenge ourselves. And this is so hard. Every single one of us has to admit this is hard. And if we don't admit it's hard, then we need to realize how much we love revenge. We love justice. We love revenge. We love to see people pay. We love revenge stories. It's all over our movies. Just off the top of my head, instantly, I'm like, okay, Count of Monte Cristo, Rambo, The Patriot, John Wick, law-abiding citizen, Django Unchained. Isn't that a popular one? Because there's a lot of people who want revenge for slavery in this country. There's a lot of people who want revenge for families killed in the riots. There are a lot of liberals who want revenge on Donald Trump and those who voted for him. There are a lot of conservatives who want to see liberals pay for their policies. There are a lot of things we could admit that we would love to see happen in the face of and in the life of the people we disagree with and our enemies with. You know, search YouTube, what do we find? Many of us probably spend our days watching someone of a different political view getting owned by facts, and we just relish, and we joy and say, get it, give it to them, give it to them. There's a lot of revenge in the world, and it's only growing. The desire for vengeance the desire to see people pay that we cannot stand, that we would consider enemies. Now, how about us? Let's bring it down to a more personal level. Where is revenge in your life? Where do you feel it? That sense of, man, I want, I want, to, I want to get my pound of flesh. I want to repay. I want to feel, I want to feel the satisfaction of, of feeling a person humiliated. Is it the person that cuts you off as Charles so elegantly brought us to, the person that cuts you off on the road? Is it the coworker? Is it the coworker that has thrown us under the bus, maybe got the promotion, maybe constantly elevates themselves by de-elevating you in the eyes of your manager or your boss, and they're constantly throwing you under the bus? Is it the boss that doesn't appreciate us? Is it the spouse that doesn't understand us or abuses us or cheats on us? Is it the brother or sister that just took our toy? Is it the parents that abuse us or leave us? The ex-boyfriend or girlfriend that ripped our heart out? The classmate that bullies us? The society that doesn't see us? The Christians that judge us? The person that offends us or the government that oppresses us? Where is vengeance growing in your heart? Who is it? Who is it? You see, the real church is to never avenge themselves. And I think this is more replete of an issue and a desire than what we could ever imagine. It's here. 
We have to never take matters into our own hand when things are coming our way. Look at this next thing. What is the necessary response to evil to overcome it? We have to defer to God. He says this, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It says there, leave it to the wrath of God. That means, maybe your translation says, make room. It means in your heart, there's a sense of a bubbling over of vengeance. And if it overtakes you completely, you're going to take matters in your own hand. You must control that, stop that, and leave a place in your heart to defer to God and give that wrath to him and let him deal with it. Leave it to the wrath of God. Defer wrath to God in the moments when evil are coming your way or when it's already come that way and you're at home and you're stewing. You're thinking about the conversation. You're thinking about what you should have said, what you wish have said. Thinking about what you're gonna say the next time you see that person. Think about what you might be able to do passive aggressively without them knowing that will stick it to them. You have to make room for the wrath of God. And then it says this, for it is written doesn't say it was written. It is written where? Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy. God has told his people, vengeance belongs to me. It is mine. I own it. Do not take it from me. And then look at this. He says this. This is the actual words of God that say vengeance is mine. I will repay, says Moses, says the Lord. Now what's comforting about this? One, in case we are tempted to think that people get away with their evil, unless you are tempted to think that the evil that's coming to you, the injustice that's coming to you is going to somehow go unnoticed, it's somehow going to fall beneath the rug or slip beneath the cracks and people are just going to get away with evil and injustice, you need to think again. God sees every single Injustice, Colossians 3 tells us that every single wrongdoing is going to be dealt with. Every single one. And so there's comfort in the fact that God has vengeance. Let me talk about this word wrath for a second. It's the word orge. I'm not going to talk about other words that we derive from that, but it has to do with heated passion. There's this emotional response from God to avenge and to take evil and deal with it. And it's not this passive, neutral, he's uninvolved emotionally. No, it is a heated passion to pour out the deserved wrath on everything that is evil and unjust. And guess what? That wrath is upon every single person on the planet. And God will absolutely bring wrath for every single person whether on the individual who decides I'm gonna stand before God and take his wrath myself or for the person who says, God, I want you to put that wrath on Jesus and I want that taken from me, which is why God poured his wonderful, awesome, terrifying wrath on his son so that those who look to him have the wrath deferred to his son. That's why he became sin who knew no sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. This is beautiful. Some of us think, God, vengeance, repaying. I thought he was a loving God. You're telling me you would think he's loving if he didn't deal with the evil in the world? 
How many people say, make the statement, people who do not know God, they ignorantly make the statement, if God is so loving, why would he this? Why would he that? Where is he? The thing is, God is being patient with everyone right now. And if he dealt with the evil over here, he'd had to deal with the evil in you. Just like he's patient with you, he's patient with the evil all over the world. But a day of wrath is coming. If we look to Romans The same book where this is said. You go back to Romans chapter one. He says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. What is he saying here? He's saying, we know the wrath of God exists because when we see a tornado or a tsunami or a hurricane wrecking havoc and destroying mass, mass groups of people, and we see constantly through the animal world and through nature, we see God's wrath on display. It's clear. It exists. It's there. And if the creation of God is as terrifying as that, how much is the standing before the creator in our sins? How much more terrifying is that going to be? Romans 2 then says this. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? you know what? God's just going to be good to me. He hasn't done anything yet. I'm getting away with it. I can do whatever I want to because God loves me and I'm his. He's like, no, you presume on his riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, look at this, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The longer you live, the more sins you will commit, the more wrath you are storing up like a bank, depositing it, putting in a savings account with a great interest growth. It is growing and growing and growing and every single evil that goes unrepentant or undealt with will all be heaped upon you when you stand before him. This is the message of the gospel. Wrath of God is coming, but there is a way to escape it. There is a way to be free from it. There is a way to come out from underneath it because God put the wrath that you deserve on his son. But what was it that's supposed to motivate people to repentance? What is it? It's God's kindness. And yet we have the audacity to look out and say, God, where are you? Look at all this evil going on. We want you to deal with it now. And God's saying, don't you realize? Don't you realize I'm far more loving than you? than you, because you, if it was in your hands, you would already kill everyone and destroy everyone and do away with everyone on the planet that offends you or that you think's evil. Me, I wait and I give the world patience and I send my gospel out into the world because I love it. I don't even love the death of the wicked. I don't even delight in it, but I will do what's right. And I'm patient with everyone. That includes the evil people that are hurting you because they are doing to you exactly what you have done to me. And what did I do for you? This is what God is telling us. When we take vengeance in our own hands, here's some things that I want you to keep in mind that we're doing. You know what? I'm gonna repay. We take that on. We get overcome by the evil of vengeance. First of all, we steal what belongs to God. We take it from him. This is his. Secondly, we bring a lesser justice and judgment. 
Do you think that we're able to do as good of a job as God will do to those who are evil? God will do far better than we can. Thirdly, we dishonor the sacrifice of Christ. Isn't this what he did on our behalf? And we still, we still that grace and that patience from people when we take matters into our own hand. And then finally this, ultimately, you know what we're doing? We're hindering the gospel, putting an obstacle in the way of it. First Corinthians nine, Paul says, I don't, wanna, I don't even wanna use my freedoms and my rights to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And that's one thing we're struggling with is we wanna fight for our freedoms and our rights over and beyond people hearing and seeing the gospel. Yes, we have freedom and rights, but Paul said, I lay that down in order to help people see the gospel. That's my number one goal. Number one goal. Because this is what God's done for me. I want others to experience it. Romans chapter 12. Never avenge yourself. Defer to God's wrath. And then finally this. You see, it's not good enough not to avenge yourself. That means do nothing. That's the negative. Do nothing. It's not good enough. You have someone who comes against you with evil. You resist Good, but you haven't completed the real church, the real Jesus, conformity to the image of the Son yet. Don't avenge. Leave room for God's wrath in your mind. Find peace in that. Give it to him. And then finally this, you have to do good to that person, to those people. It says this in verse 20, to the contrary, rather oppositely than this, do this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. To the contrary, this is what we should be doing. This is the real church. This is those who have experienced it from Jesus. They give it to others. The example of Christ is what we have in Romans chapter five, the same book that we're in. We're told while we, while we were still weak or enemies with God at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, unworthy, worldly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Trees, conformity to the world. This is the way the world acts. Let's look at the summit. This is the characteristics of God and his people. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Church, this is the summit. This is what we must remember. This is what we must keep our eyes on when evil's coming our way, no matter who it is, no matter how small or big it is. This is what we keep. Look what God has done for you. Remember what he's done for you. Remember, remember, do not forget. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemies. Never told you should hate your enemy, but that's what they believed. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. You'll be just like God then. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I wanna challenge every single person here this week. Take time to read the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is gonna give you the right understanding of suffering in your life. We need a proper 
theology of what it means to suffer. It is throughout the whole book. Peter writes to a group of Christians, many different churches, who are being dispersed during the time of Nero, whose families are being killed, eaten by lions, speared, thrown in prison, and they're in hiding, hiding. And he writes to them, and you know what he tells them? He says, right now you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than anything on this planet, may be found to honor glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says this in chapter three. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And he says this, Christ also suffered for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. And he reminds them not to be surprised, not to be shocked when some type of fiery trial comes upon you. Something strange is happening to me. Something strange is happening to the church right now. Something strange is happening in the world. No, this is always the case, and God brings it to test us. Are we really his? And it is the test by fire that will prove if your faith is real and will prove and give you the opportunity is the spirit in me that's allowing me to do this for my enemies. Let me ask you this question, all of us. Do we, do we truly desire within our heart to see the lost, to see people who are lost and under the wrath of God, do we truly desire to see them saved? If so, the next part of Romans 12, verse 20 says this. You feed them, you give them something to drink, you do good to your enemies. And he says this, for by so doing, you will heap coals that are burning on their head. Quoting Proverbs. Already he's quoted Deuteronomy. Now he's quoting the book of Proverbs. You do this and something is going to happen but he's giving you a motivation that presupposes or assumes that you actually care about this person's salvation. Hey, you know what? If you do, what, what happens when you do something knowingly wrong to someone else and they only respond with love to you? I mean, what does that do? That just, just eats you. It should eat you alive inside. But when someone's arguing back, returning evil for evil, you constantly feel justified in the argument. Same thing in a marriage, right? I'm arguing, they're arguing, you're just building. You don't care about the evil that you're doing because they're bringing the evil to you and it always feels justified. But the moment one of the spouse, spouses stops and takes it and blesses and shows love, as the proverb says, a soft answer turns away wrath. There's debate about what this exactly means, but we know from the context, it's meant to bring shame to the person, a good type of shame that would lead to their conviction, that would help them see that the person I just did evil to has something that I don't, because I would never respond like that. The person would actually see Jesus in you and that they would be convicted just like you were to the point to fall on their knees and ask God to save them. And they would be brought into the fold, into the sheepfold of the church. And they would sit here under a canopy and sing, sing songs that God is good and he's way maker. And he would become a brother and a sister. She would become family 
because we suffered rightly. We suffered for righteousness sake and we did not take matters into our own hand, but we loved like Jesus did. And they experienced the gospel through us because we understand what it means to suffer properly. Conclusion, verse 21 says this then. Do not be overcome by evil. You know, sometimes we think too simplistically. Evil means evils, I'm I'm being, I gotta protect myself. I don't wanna be overcome by evil and I gotta make sure I'm protected from evil. To be overcome by evil means the, the thoughts of anger and revenge that are within you take over and you retaliate. That's what it is to be overcome by. Defeated is the word. But then he says this, but defeat evil. How? With what? With good, which is the whole life of Jesus that we are to be conformed to. That's how we overcome evil. I was moved this week as I somehow in my study, God led me to study people of the past who gave up their lives and who exemplified this verse in wonderful ways. Maybe you've heard this, the story of Jim Elliott. Maybe you've seen the movie End of the Spear in the 50s, a young man who is in love with God and feels called to the Ecuadorian people, to a tribe that has been untouched to the Waldani, but they called them the Aka, the savages, because they didn't even know the names of these people. And every single person that had gone before them to try to make contact with me all died. And maybe you know the story where Jim Elliott and his friends flew over with the plane and they were dropping goods and peace offerings and they spent days trying to find a place to land and try to slowly make contact with these people. One day they land on, they find a, a shore next to, next to the water, the riverbed, a shore, enough, enough space for them to land. And they begin to meet some of the women and the children and some of the men and slowly they begin to come out of the woods, out of the jungle and meet these people and they're beginning to learn the language and God is doing a wonderful thing. And you know, they're probably excited that finally what we've been praying for, we're meeting this people until one day on the shore, the men of the village with spears came running out and impelled Jim Elliott and his friends to death, killed them right there on the spot. And you know what? Every, you know what? They had guns with them the whole time as well. They let them kill them. And as miraculous as that is, it create, the story gets even crazier as the family that's left from these men, as the family that's left, they don't go running and screaming for justice. They don't go seeking out these people to try to bring revenge on themselves. They, they seek through the jungle and they come to meet the same people that killed their husbands, their fathers. And they've finished the work that they started and these wives and these these children, they come and they begin to live with these jungle people and they bring them the gospel. They bring them the gospel and they become family with the very ones that killed the people that they loved. Become family with them. Are you kidding me? One of the sons of the fathers that died grew up with the tribe and actually grew up to have an intimate relationship, a familiar relationship with the man who speared his father. And he says, the tribesman says, you know, I did that when my heart was black. My heart's no longer black because he knows Jesus. You see, this is the real church. This is what we're here for. This is the summit. We're not living for this life. Our lives are forfeit. 
Our lives, our bodies are going to deteriorate and to die if not by cancer or a car accident or some type of other accident or by our own foolishness and stupidity, our bodies are going to die. I don't know about you, but if my body were to be given up on the sacrifice of death, I'd want it to be for a good cause. I'd want it to be like these heroes of the faith that sometimes we are not worthy of as we complain and bicker and seek revenge on people who've done far less to us. And we show Jesus isn't in us because we're so set on seeing people get what they deserve. I want to be used by God, but I know I cannot do this in and of myself. We have to be reliant on the spirit and allow God to make us the real church and lay our lives down for our very enemies because that is what Jesus did for us. Jim Elliott, one of his, his probably most famous quote, he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that you would forgive me. I confess a spirit of anger and frustration and vindication and vengeance. And even if I don't take matters into my own hand, I, I revel over it in my mind, in my heart. Whether it be authorities above me, even brothers and sisters. God, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? And during this time of trial and testing that you've put us in, would you help us to embody the mind of Christ that cares more about others seeing you than even about our own safety. God, I admit we cannot do this. We cannot do this in our own strength. And if you leave us to it, we will let you down. So my prayer is we will already leave room for your wrath and we will ask you to come in and have your way with us and use us. We want to be the real church humbly on our knees saying we are not that unless we remain in you. And I pray all of this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. You are who you say you are. You'll do what you say you'll do. You'll be who you've always been to us, Jesus. Our hope is in you alone. Our strength in your mighty name. Our peace darkest day remains Jesus Yes we know we will see the enemy run Yes we know we will see the victory come We hold on to every promise you ever made Jesus you are unfailing
trust you Your ways Higher than our own We trust you We trust you hardest thing you've ever had to endure for the sake of Christ and um, and as I'm sitting where I'm sitting the sun is starting to beat down on me and Wendy's like you can slide over here and I'm starting to think well you know what that's it's a pretty silly thing to even consider in regard to what I would suffer for the sake of Christ and then even as I sat there and I thought and I let roll through my mind what are the things that I've suffered for the sake of Christ I don't have anything worth even mentioning when you take it in comparison to what guys like Jim Elliott and the guys that were with him and their families had to and have had to endure. So I celebrate what we get here in our wonderful and free country. At the same time, I believe that we should be expressing a boldness with our mouths that would provoke someone to be angry with us for speaking the name of Christ. And so I want to leave you with the question, what is the worst thing you've ever had to suffer for the sake of Christ? Hey, listen, if you're new with us today, we would love to meet you. The pastoral staff and elders are going to be up here. If you have anything you would like to pray um, with us regarding, please come forward. But always know this, church, 
You are loved, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Remember, keep your eye on the weather, and um, if it's inclement weather that is um, forecasted, we will make an announcement at like 8 o'clock in the morning next Sunday to let you know what our plans are. So know this, you are loved and dismissed. See you next week.